one of the byproducts of everyone having a video camera that they carry around at all times. You know, this used to be a cell phone, you know, but not anymore. That function is very secondary now. This is a texting machine, a video camera, a lot of other functions with this. And because it's a video camera, seemingly everyone has one that they carry around at all times, and everyone has the ability to upload whatever they record onto platforms for the entire world to see. I think one of the byproducts is that we get to uh, watch the bloopers and the failures of people all the time. Have you ever seen how many mistakes people have made? And there, it's almost a cottage industry unto itself to watch blooper videos and, and failure videos and, and images on demand. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it just really speaks of our civilization today and what we will leave uh, as a uh, remnant for archaeologists years later to study our, our society. You know, let other civilizations be known for their advancement of the human race, the invention of the wheel, the controlling of fire. You have heavier-than-air flight, the combustion engine, radar, traveling to outer space. But let the legacy that we leave, future generations, and all of human history be watching complete strangers trip over their dog. <laughs> I, I think it's just tremendous, you know. And there's this one particular subgenre within this phenomenon that has a very interesting name. It's called You Had One Job. <laughs> and as you might expect, it's example after example of people who messed up doing the simplest of tasks. For example, you have the contractor who misspelled the school crosswalk. And, you know, you look at it, and it almost looks like school, and, you know, shakul, it almost sounds like school. Um, and you can see how someone might make that mistake, but there it is, someone with their camera, never letting that contractor live it down. It's there for all eternity, you know. In the end, Mr. Contractor, you had one job. And, but not to be outdone, there was another contractor who uh, wanted to compete with that, and so here's what he came up with. <laughs> Skull hole. You know, and, and it's not the worst thing in the world to misspell. I think most of us probably can't even spell the word misspell, but um, we all misspell words. We all do it, but I think it's important to double-check your work once you're done, uh, or at least ask the opinion of any of the kids that may be at the nearby school how the word might be spelled. You know, you had... One job. And, uh, and so it's sort of fun to look at things and see how people mess up and all the while hope that we're never on the receiving end of that, that no one would ever publish our mistakes. Uh, well, years ago, a guy made a statement, a, a man in France made a statement uh, sort of like that, like you had one job. But he made that statement about God. And uh, he was almost bragging, I think, about how he was ready to commit an act of immorality. He knew what he was about to do was wrong, and, and uh, he was going to do it anyway. And someone had, had asked him, someone questioned him, aren't you concerned that God will hold you accountable? And his reply to that question was this. The good God 
will forgive me. That's his job. Now, not only is that statement dangerously arrogant, but it presumes that the forgiveness of God is simply an automatic gift that everyone receives. That God just almost can't help himself but to forgive us regardless of what we've done or what we believe. You know, and people who have this type of attitude, and I hope that it never creeps into your heart that, hey, I can get away with this. God's going to forgive me. God, he has to forgive me. I hope that attitude never creeps into your heart because the, that attitude, should it creep into someone's heart, ultimately results in someone falsely believing that created humans are above the Creator God. Hey, I certainly fooled Him. I can get away with anything. And God has to forgive me. It's His job. Hopefully you can see that that type of attitude mischaracterizes both the nature of God and the forgiveness that He offers. But I think... With the possibility of that attitude being out there, there it, it raises a more legitimate question that people have asked from time to time. And, and I think someone could ask this type of question more humbly and, and truthfully and honestly. And I think it's a good question. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross for us to obtain God's forgiveness? I mean, can't God just declare us forgiven? without the cross? And if he just declared us to be forgiven, wouldn't it just be so? Was the cross really necessary? And I think that that is a fair question to ask. And it can be, if asked in the right spirit, a humble question to raise. And I would like to address that today. Now, the Bible makes it very clear in a number of places that the cross of Christ, by, by that I specifically mean the death of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, on the cross. The cross of Christ enables us to come to God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, this is the verse that we'll look at today. We read, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous... For the unrighteous, you and me, that he might bring you to God. Got it? Very simple teaching. Jesus died on the cross to bring you to God. And so the Bible states that very clearly, but it, in this verse it doesn't answer the question why. Why did it take the eternal, perfect, sinless Son of God suffering and dying on the cross for us to have a good relationship with God. I mean, can't God just sort of overlook our sins? Sort of the way we might overlook someone else's transgressions against us. Isn't God capable of that? Well, there's numerous reasons why the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was necessary for us to be forgiven, but today we're going to look at two of them. Two of the main ones, and very simply put, it's sin and holiness. So we're going to look at these two concepts. 
And I want you to understand this, that the person who believes that God should do nothing more than simply declare humanity to be forgiven, that person understands neither the gravity of sin or the holiness of God. So let's talk about sin. The New Testament uses five main words to describe sin. And these words that describe sin are the following. First of all, there's the word sin. It means missing the target. And so this is the idea of, you know, you're, you're playing darts. You ever play darts with the dartboard? And you line it up, you line it up, and you throw it sideways. And you hit your friend in the eye and all kinds of problems. Come after that, lawsuits, it's terrible. So you miss the target. And there may be damage because you missed the target. That's the word sin. Then there's the word transgression. It means to trespass. We know what it means to trespass. It means to go somewhere you should not go. There's the word iniquity. And by the way, different English translations will use different types of words to describe these five concepts. And that's okay because the English language is very complex and, and beautiful. But there's the word iniquity. It means unrighteousness. It means doing something that's wrong. Doing something that's not right. Being not right. That's iniquity. The fourth one is lawlessness. This is knowingly disregarding God's commands. This is not good at all. It is the idea of someone saying, I know what God has said. And I choose deliberately to disregard him and do my own thing. That's lawlessness. And the fifth word is wickedness. It means something that is evil. Something perhaps even vicious or degenerate. That's a word we don't use very often. These are five concepts that describe what sin is. And no matter which word is used or where it's used, in every single case, there is either a standard that we fail to reach or there is a line that we deliberately cross. And here's what you need to know. It is God who establishes the standards. It is God who establishes the lines. And those standards and those lines come from his very nature. So let me give you an example. When God says, do not kill, and the internal, the internal expression of that, do not hate others. So there's the external, do not kill, do not murder someone. There's the internal, do not even hate. When God says that, those commands are not just random, meaningless commands to which some distant deity subjects his creatures. God's commands direct us to his very nature. What do I mean by that? Everything that God commands flows from the nature of God, from his own nature. God is not murder. God is love. Therefore, we are not to murder or even hate our neighbor. We are to love our neighbor. 
And so every single time that we miss the target, every single time that we transgress against God, every single time that we act upon our unrighteous heart, every single time we just blatantly disregard God's law, or even if we get to the point that we become very evil and vicious toward others, we are essentially violating who God is. And by the way, there is a substantial and integral difference between you offending another person and you offending God. You see, every sin against God that we commit, it is not a violation between two equals. That would be bad enough. When you do something wrong to somebody else, that is a violation between two equals. But you are not equal to God. Your sin is the violation of both the express command and the very nature of someone infinitely greater than you. And not only is God greater, but as we intimated a few moments ago, God is holy. And so it is both of these concepts, both the extent and the depth of sin, understanding that, and understanding the extent and the depth of God's holiness that makes the cross of Christ necessary for forgiveness. And since both concepts are true, since sin is absolutely evil and God is absolutely holy, then God cannot allow sin to cohabit with him. Sin is an affront to God. Sin is antithetical to God's very nature. The expression of God's holiness against sin is what we call his wrath. John Stott once wrote, God's Holiness exposes sin, and his wrath opposes it. So sin cannot approach God, and God cannot tolerate sin. Now, the Bible uses a number of ways to express this idea that our sin and God's holiness are total polar opposites. One of the metaphors is the metaphor of height. Scripture contrasts us and God by using metaphors of height. For example, the Bible calls God the Most High God. The Bible says that He is the Lord Most High, Yahweh Most High. The Bible repeatedly in the Old and New Testament, says that God is exalted. God is high and lifted up. The Bible says that heaven is God's throne and the earth, where we are, is God's footstool. Jesus himself, he is the one who did what? He came down from heaven to earth. He condescended himself to become one of us. He lowered himself to become a human. And so there's this idea of height that separates us from God. There's an idea of distance. 
Scripture talks about there being a great distance between us and God. God is said to be far away from us. Do you remember the first thing that God told Moses at the burning bush? Everyone remembers the burning bush incident. And everyone remembers one thing that God said to Moses at the burning bush. Take off your sandals. You're standing on what? Holy ground. But that's not the first thing God said to Moses. You go back and read it. The very first thing that God said to Moses was, Do not come any closer. Do not come any closer. I think God said that for Moses' own protection. Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. There's an idea of distance between God and Moses at the burning bush. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, we're told that the tabernacle was to be a holy place. And in the tabernacle, there was to be an especially holy place, the Holy of Holies. And regular people like you and me would not have been allowed into the Holy of Holies. And there within the Holy of Holies, there was an Ark of the Covenant. And it was on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that God said that He would dwell with Israel. And even when the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was traveling around, Israel was told to keep its distance from the Ark. At the Last Judgment, Jesus Himself said that sinners who do not repent, have not repented, and they have not trusted Christ for their salvation, will hear these terrible words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers, you who practice lawlessness. Depart from me. Again, there's distance between God who is holy and sin. A third concept that we read about in Scripture is light. The Bible says very plainly, God is light. And in Him there's no darkness at all. But you know what happens when you have a very bright light? You can't get too close to a bright light. You can't look directly at a bright light. Why? You could go blind. If you look directly at a light. And so what do you do? You keep your distance. You avert your eyes. What you see from the light is only the light that's reflected off of other things. But you don't look at the light itself because it's far too bright. It sort of indicates there's a substantial difference between us and God. God also says in His Word that He is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. I don't have to tell you what happens when you get too close to a fire. And so what do you do? Again, you, set, you stay at a safe distance. You know, all four of these metaphors, height, distance, light, fire, and there are, there are many others, all of these indicate that there is something qualitatively in opposition between man and God. But there is another picture given in Scripture that is even more vivid than any of these. And it's almost graphic in nature, and I hesitate to dwell too long on it. But I, I think I need to share it with you, because I need you to understand how opposed God is to our sin. 
God is so opposed to evil, he rejects evil with all of his being so powerfully that Scripture compares his reaction to it to be as strong as the human body's reaction to ingesting poison. I'm talking about vomiting. When the human body vomits, that is an extreme, violent reaction. Something has gone incredibly wrong. Some wrong food has been eaten, or some bad sickness has infected the body. The body so completely rejects that which has been consumed that the natural processes of breaking down the food and absorbing what is needed and bypassing what is not needed, all of that is immediately interrupted. None of the food now will be processed. Not even the good stuff will be processed. And so every one of those initial bodily functions of receiving food is reversed. The rejection of what has been received is so thorough that the body cannot at that time do anything else. At that point, the entire body is solely and completely focused on one thing and one thing only. Get it out. There's no multitasking when you're vomiting. The Old Testament says that the evil practices of the Canaanites were so disgusting that the land vomited out its inhabitants. And then the Bible says that if Israel were to dare to take up those same practices, that the land would vomit it out as well. And the land, by the way, is only expressing the very heart of God. And very famously... Jesus in the New Testament, when he spoke to the church at Laodicea, he said that he was ready to spit them out, to vomit them out, actually, of his mouth. Why? Because they were lukewarm. The imagery is very clear. Our sin is not simply wrong to God. He is disgusted by it. God is absolutely repulsed by our sin so much that he must rid himself of it. And that is our problem. God must expel sin from his presence. But... We are so connected to our sin. Our sin is so connected to us that it is a package deal. When God expels sin from his presence, we are likewise expelled. Depart from me. I never knew you, Jesus said. It is not enough for God to simply declare all is forgiven. Why? Because that simple declaration would not disconnect us from our sin. For us to be disconnected from our sin, for sin to be extricated and judged 
separately from us. There must be someone upon whom our sins could be placed. And that someone would have to be completely human. Why? Because it is human sin that would be paid for. And that someone would have to be more than human. He would have to also be God. Why? Because only someone who is God could pay for all of the sins of every person in all of human history. Past, present, and future. And once this God-man had extricated all of the sins of humanity and placed them upon himself, he would have to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That is the only way for sinful humans like you and me to be brought into a good and right relationship with the one and only holy God. There is simply no other way. All of the good works of all of the man-made religions of the world cannot deal adequately with the problem of the incompatibility of human sin and God's holiness. Transcendental, transcendental meditation, obeying the Quran, listening to Joseph Smith, praying the rosary, all of these have one thing in common. None of them will pay for your sin. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, dying with our sins placed upon Him, can make us right with God. And that's exactly what He did. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says that He made the one who did not know sin, that's God made Jesus, who did not know sin, to become sin. Jesus became sin. Our sins were placed upon Him, and He paid the penalty. This happened so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, in 1 Peter 3.18, we read, For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So what is our response? How do we make sure that we receive what Jesus did on the cross? The Bible makes it very clear. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we read, To all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name. That's what you must do. You must believe. The Bible says that whoever confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, that person will be saved. And so if today you're ready to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means that He is above all. And you're ready to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. The Bible says you'll be saved. All you have to do is confess and believe. And that's the good news of why the cross is necessary.